You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. is back and so soon after Fantastic Fest. That's because I spent the week before Fantastic Fest frantically watching everything I could get my hands on to hand off a giant stack to poor Sir John Golson here. Yes. Who had his own little Fantastic Fest at his house watching all these movies. <laughs> fantastic <laughs> may not be the right term. Yeah, I was like, uh, I'd be careful using the word fantastic. I did get, I did make time for Color Out of Space over at the festival. Oh, you got to see? That's um, one of the few I didn't get yeah, to see. I, I made time for Color Out of Space as sort of a a birthday treat from a friend got me got me a oh, pass to nice. Colorado space. Um, so that was the taste of the festival I got. Otherwise, I was at home enjoying this fine array of international films. <laughs> no dripping sarcasm detected in that voice. There are some really good ones in here. I know one of them in particular is one of your all-time favorites. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we we and there's one movie in here in particular that has officially made it to my top 5 list of all-time most enjoyable terrible movies. Oh. Like that's just so just gloriously bad in mm. all the right ways that I was like, I kind of love this movie. I actually went up to Owen Egerton from Master Pancake Theater. He's like, I have a present for you, <laughs> and you will be thanking me once I loan you this movie. You're going to go, oh my god, or they do the local Mystery Science Theater type thing here, live show. It's like, they're going to eat that fucking oh. movie up. <laughs> you know, I, I you know what I'm know talking about. Yeah. I bet I know what it is. But before we go there... We'll go at the beginning of my list, which is a movie that despite uh, coming to, I would say, mixed reviews, I really enjoyed it, although calling it definitely a slight work by Jim Jarmusch. I sort mm. of like, you know what? I always wanted to do this, and I got a yeah. bunch of actors who'll show up anytime I ask them to, so fuck it. Let's make a Zomcom, The Dead Don't Die. And we did, in fact, review this theatrically. I can completely understand any complaints about this film or the complaints I have heard about it. But for me as a, I almost can't completely elucidate why I'm such a big Jim Jarmusch fan. Cause I'm not one of those people who are like, Ooh, indie filmmaker. I automatically love them. He's just one of those guys for whatever reasons, his movies always tend to resonate with me in exactly the right way. And this, like I said, it, it felt like, um, God, what is that? You remember the movie Smoke? He didn't do it, but uh, with Harvey right. Keitel. Yeah. And then they made a movie called, I think, Blue in the Face, mm -hmm. which was just basically them fucking around, yeah. <laughs> joking on the set of Smoke with leftover money. This is kind of like that for Jarmusch and his buddies. They clearly barely wrote a script. Oh, it's definitely not the zombie version of Only Lovers Left Alive. No, that one is actually like... Well, I mean, he has this thing that I didn't even think about until this movie came out. I was like, wow, this guy makes a lot of genre films, but all that don't feel at all like any other version of that genre ever. Yeah. This one, I would argue, feels more in many ways like an actual zombie film than any other genre film he's made. But even so, it's so decidedly, laconically, you know, performed 
sort of odd, quirky characters Jim Jarmusch film. I mean, he's not trying to make Zombieland here. When you have Bill Murray and Adam Driver as your leads as two sort of like take-it-in-stride police officers in a small town, right there you're going to go, okay, this is definitely more of a Jarmusch film than a typical zombie film. Yeah, it's packed to the edges with character actors that you'll recognize from other things. Um, It's got a really interesting cast. This is like a hangout movie where it was probably a hell of a lot of fun to be on the set and uh, play these parts and say these lines and do these things. And I don't know that that translates to being like the greatest movie experience. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I was like, I'm sure that they all are were very, very pleased with themselves on the day of shooting. Um, I didn't find it nearly as amusing, but I, but it didn't offend me. Um, it was just one of those things where it's like, this literally feels like he made it so that they could show it, like almost like an outtake reel, how they show it to the cast and crew. Yeah. It felt like it was made to be shown to the cast and crew, right. which is a weird thing for a movie to be. But it gets it gets meta as well, which feels very specific to the players, where it's like, again, it was probably pretty funny to them. I don't know how well that translates. I feel like it worked for me because there's just that realization early on, this is just kind of them all fucking around. And I can think of few casts working with the director that are more fun to watch fucking around than Jim Jarmusch and his cast of regulars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, nothing about this is here to be taken seriously. I heard some people complaining really hard, like, oh, so they're saying, like, zombies is a metaphor for consumerism, whatever. It's been done. It's like, even Jarmusch is not taking the metaphor or anything else super seriously here. It's, like you said, it's them kind of fucking around, doing it for themselves. I wouldn't be surprised to find out if over half of this was just improv Yeah. You know, but I, I genuinely thought a lot of it was very funny in that sort of oddball Jarmusch way. I thought the meta stuff was kind of hysterical, like a high point of the film for me. Although I tell you, I don't I need to ever hear uh, uh, the theme song to this again, which was overplayed, but that was kind of the point. Uh, what was his name? Um, the the music artist who, who did it? I can't believe I don't know because they say it a billion times. Yeah, I can't remember movie. either. He- uh, but yeah, the, he's like the... the uh, the songs by this country, sort of new country guy, but like, it, you know, art country, mm. if, you will, if you will. And they regularly reference, it. it's kind of funny, this song sounds like what's happening in this movie, you know, and they're aware they're kind of in a movie. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I had a good time with it. Your results are definitely going to vary. But with a cast like Bill Murray, Adam Driver, Tilda Swinton, Chloe Savigny, Steve Buscemi, Danny Glover, Caleb Landry Jones, Rosie Perez, Iggy Pop, Sarah Driver, The Rizza, Carol Kane, Selena Gomez, Tom Waits, Larry Fessenden, oh, Sturgill Simpson, being the musician who also appears in it as Guitar Zombie. Uh, It's hard to say this is not worth watching, (laughs) but don't expect it to be a new masterpiece of either Jarmusch or of uh, indie horror, because it's neither. It it was sold a little bit like like Shaun of the Dead, mm -hmm. a little, and... I guess superficially it's like that, but it's really also kind of not like that. I suspect Jarmusch fans are going to like this more than zombie and horror movie fans are going Probably to. Probably so. Uh, there are a few extra features here. Most of them are, once again, just them fucking around. Uh, there's like a minute and a half of Bill Murray talking about being being a zombie hunting action star. Uh, there's it's about two and, uh, two and three quarter minutes stick together with a cast and crew talking about Jim Jarmusch. And then there's a six part tiny little series of featurettes of just weird 
like we just filmed this because whatever we thought it was funny that our, our not like zombie extras being pr- told to practice making moaning sounds, stuff like that. You're like, all right, they really put about as much effort into these bonus features as they did into <laughs> the movie itself. But like I said, this is a movie I will revisit because I'm just that big of a Jarmusch fan. Uh, next up, we have Arctic. Will Arctic be the film to finally break our streak of epic horror and sci-fi pictures that we're only meh about? John? Hey, uh, I kind of dug this. I did too. Oh my god, we broke the streak. <laughs> yeah, this this is a movie about a guy um, who fancies himself. You know, it's almost like the darker indie version of something like Glass. This is a guy who fancies himself uh, sort of a comic book supervillain um, who has his son um, target people for death with this like sort of symbol that he uses. Um, and he is, it, there are hints of the fact that, um, for everyone like him in the world, and there's gotta be heroes. And so, and again, it goes back into this obsession that he has with comic books. Um, but the son makes friends with, um, uh, social worker, a social worker. Yeah. And, and it, it kind of disrupts the, uh, this, this brooding, um, Hulk of a guy's life, this killer, the psycho killer's life. Um, I will say the guy who's playing the the psycho killer is actually really engaging because he's not playing it how you'd expect him to at all. It's kind of he kind of mumbles and has this like sort of voice like this, like he's sort of monotone. Um, he's like, I like that. He's not a, a, like a redneck. Well, he's kind of a redneck, but he's not like a hills have eyes mutant. Uh, or a Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh, type character. Yeah, he's unique as a crazy killer, and he doesn't really get histrionic. Yeah. Um, he's rather calm most of the time, all things considered. <laughs> and yeah. Despite the fact it is, by definition, abuse to sh- show your son how to murder people and do it in front of him, he's uh, most of the time not doesn't treat his son very badly at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. So this is like, it's it doesn't really have anything... Its brand of horror is sort of um, parked in human suffering. It's that kind of, like, torture stuff. Um, That's sort of where, when it gets horrific, that's sort of where it goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think that it doesn't really have anything new to to show there. So it's not one of those that you would watch necessarily for the kills or anything like that. But it's different, and it's just different enough in a good way to make it interesting. The characters are, are fairly well drawn and well acted and I haven't quite seen anything like it. So yeah, I, I, I did sort of dig this. Yeah. I, I, it still has that thing that I'll say of almost all the uh, features we've talked about from this just distribution company of feeling kind of unfinished. Like there should have been one more pass on this. Yeah. Although most of those felt like they should have had two or three more passes. Yeah. This definitely felt like, a third act that needed a bit more tweaking to make it come together and feel resonant. But on the whole, you're right. It's just different enough. Uh, the actors are, are, are decent in here and playing these roles a little differently than you'd expect. The kid actor is, in, is even kind of engaging in, in his sullen way. Um, it has a few surprises along the way. The gore, while not wildly excessive, is enough there to make gore hounds happy, if not super, like, ridiculously over-the-top gory. Um, there are a couple things like he's got a torture chair that's kind of neato. In fact, one of the bonus features on here is called the chair behind the scenes featurette. That's just about his torture chair. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, overall, I did like this. And I think people who are looking for something slightly different with their crazed killer horror film uh, search might find this engaging. When I, so that for a little, for just one year, I said it's for a little while, but it was months, but it was just one year, I was on the film selection committee for Fantastic Fest. Hmm. And there, it, there's a weird kind of gray area that I don't think people realize where there are the films that make it into the festival. There are the films that are sort of rejected outright, where it's like they're they're simply not good enough, and you know it immediately. But there's this like other mid range batch of films that don't end up playing the festival that aren't bad movies. Yeah, and Arctic reminded me of the days that I was having to screen all those movies, where it was just like you probably what what their their method was at the time was either it was either immediate no, or you pass it along to somebody else to be like, hey, a second set of eyes. Get a second opinion on this, right? Or an immediate yes, and now an immediate yes would would guarantee a second set of eyes. Um, but this kind of hovers around that maybe area where it's like uh, you see movies like this, and it's kind of like when you're when you're in that process, you're sort of like what whatever happens to these? Like what happens to these films that don't end up playing the festivals, but only truly because there are better movies not because sure. they suck but because they're they're just things that are better this felt like one that would have certainly gotten accepted the first like 2 years of fantastic fest when yeah. it was we're just a horror festival mm-hmm. uh and like after they decided no we mean any film we think is fantastic which i still think is a little wishy-washy but <laughs> you know, uh like now certainly wouldn't be actually surprised there were a couple films i was championing championing 2 years ago that i saw from fantasia that i thought were incredible like just tremendously great movies that like were so different and made a point like pushing them on the the crew and they didn't pick any of them they're like yeah none of us liked him i was like y'all need someone else different in there because if none of y'all like this then clearly y'all are missing some gap of taste because i know a ton of people who saw this at fantasia and thought it was amazing or one of these films uh but you know that's the thing about taste and i think they should like all the people who make choices there should be sequestered and not allowed to talk to each other all year (laughs) (laughs) they are not allowed to hang out with each other or they might start agreeing too much yeah (laughs) um there's also director's commentary here there's a uh behind the scenes with the characters featurette and there's two short films uh, one is eleven uh, for eleven minutes. Both of them have optional commentaries. I did not watch the short films. I don't. Know. I didn't either. Oh well, we suck. <laughs> sorry, sorry to, to everyone and anybody listening. Ar- Arctic is spelled weird. Um, it's not spelled like Arctic. Yeah, it's spelled like A R T I K. Yeah, uh, if you're looking for the film. Uh, so next up is that film I was mentioning, Nightwish, which is I think most of the one of the most genuinely glorious horrible movies I've seen in quite some time. And this is counting uh, one you did not get to see, Rock, Paper, Scissors, from a couple shows ago, yeah. uh, which is also one I would highly recommend to people searching out those sort of gems of it's so fucking weird and bad, but in exactly the right way. But this one's from, like, the 90s, which always puts a little special glow on it, right? Uh, the 90s or maybe late 80s. Yeah, it's 80s. I'm sorry. Man, this is a weird fucking movie. Just in, in the way its plot moves from one really strange change of what kind of horror movie it is to the next. But then it's filled with some of the 
almost had to be consciously terrible dialogue I've ever seen in a film. Like, laugh out loud, oh my god, what in the fuck dialogue moments <laughs> and dis- character decisions. Uh, the one thing that I think would bring people to this nowadays would be Brian Thompson, who is an actor best known as sort of a, a character actor who's been on almost every genre TV show ever made, but I always remember him best from The X-Files, playing the alien, the, the scary, uh, shape-changing alien assassin. But uh, he plays a, the smallest role in this film, but he's fucking hysterical when he's it. <laughs> it's a memorable part. Uh, so the idea is there's this professor, and he uses sensory deprivation technology. He's been experimenting, and he's got four grad students, and he's setting them up to intentionally have really, really horrible nightmares during this experience and measure stuff about them. Uh, and then somehow... That leads to him being a parapsychologist, and he leads his team to a, a abandoned mansion uh, that's supposed to be super haunted, uh, and he wants to contact a, a, a evil entity across the dimensions. And then at first, so you're literally seeing, like, green neon fucking snake tentacles coming out of the air. And he's like, aha, I fooled you all. I faked that. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) It was just a, it was, what do you call, like, you know, the the first fake test or whatever in a medical thing, like a double blind or something. It's like, oh, okay. And then as they go along, it's like, oh, it turns out the professor's really insane and willing to do anything to actually contact this other dimensional demon thing that I guess is possessing people sort of, or mutating them or I'm not, I don't even know. There's aliens involved somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. So what comes the, aliens? What's the name of the Natalie Wood? Uh, there was like dreamscape. Brain scan. And, was it brain scan? I think brain scan, brainstorm, uh, brainstorm, something like that. Um, yeah, I think it's brainstorm because brain scans the Ed Furlong movie. Um, this is kind of like it's. I think it's obvious that this was prob that this probably got its money from Nightmare on Elm Street, where mm-hmm. somebody said, "Hey, this is hot. You know, give us some money, producers, because we've also got a horror movie about dreams." But the movie itself is structured more like Dreamscape or 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 uh, or Brainstorm, where it's like it's very much just. Um, it's more sci-fi than horror. It probably leans more sci-fi than horror. There's a lot of like great um, lo-fi special effects in it. Uh, it is brainstorm, by the way. Brainstorm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of great kind of lo-fi special effects in it in the in the back half that were pretty cool. Lots of goopy alien stuff. Again, there's the weird animated uh, mist that kind of recalls like some of the animation used in Ghostbusters or yeah, Poltergeist. Or the gate. Yeah. Or something. Um, so it's, it's worth seeing for that. It's, it is, um, at times very difficult to follow, nearly incoherent. Yeah. I think everybody is really doing their best though, which kind of gives it the feeling of like an unseen gem a little bit because everything feels so, um, earnest in its efforts. Like it doesn't feel like anybody is, trying to make crap. They're like, we've watched some stuff where it's like, what's the snowmobile movie we watched where it's like, oh, yeah. I don't think anybody was actually like, I, I don't think anybody That felt like one of those ones that was making accidentally anything. coddled together into yeah. a movie. This feels like, this feels like a very noble effort to try to create something really cohesive. And, and it is worthwhile. I think if it were easier, just a little bit easier to follow, um, that I would have liked it a lot more. 
Um, but yeah. it was a little kind of all over the place. And, and it kind of made me sad because I was like, man, I would really, I would really recommend this as like sort of an undiscovered gem if I thought the plotting was a little stronger. Well, the, the biggest, writing was a little The biggest stronger. problem here is the writing is just yeah. awful. Yeah. I mean, it's so awful that it's like Ed Wood levels of awful. And the, nobody seems to realize it, which is the weird thing. Like, the director is clearly working his ass off to put together a watchable, cool-looking film. The actors are a mixed bag. Oh, there's a full-on Simple Jack character in this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to make a Tropic Thunder reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, every, like, Brian Thompson is, like, the worst boyfriend in the world. Who's like, there's a scene where he's just driving and hysterically laughing about nothing. I don't know. Are, are you like, is he the bad guy? Like, there's lots of stuff. You're like, I have no idea why that just happened. But I kind of liked it. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the batshit insanity of it making no sense. That's one of the things I like about it. Because I think otherwise it would be just a minor, forgettable, but noble effort, as you said, type yeah. of film. But as it is, it's messiness and is kind of what makes it charming mm-hmm. for me. I can um, see that. It's a movie I will probably, I will almost certainly show to other people and go like, you've just got to see this for yourself. It's, you will never have seen another movie like this. It's, it's kind of insane. I'm curious if this has ever played Terror Tuesday or Weird Wednesday. At oh, the I'm Alamo. sure it's played Terror Tuesday. Well, obviously it's got some followers because Unearthed Films, who's putting this out, bringing it to Blu-ray for the first time, has got a glossy slip cover. There's a brand new audio commentary from the executive producer, which sounds horrible, by the way. I, I listened to about half the movie again, again with it, and it sounds like he's recording from a distant phone booth holding the phone like five feet away from his head. You're Good. like, seriously, guys, you couldn't have fixed that? He was in a sense deprivation tank. <laughs> There's a 24-page booklet with production notes and a short introduction from a writer from a magazine called Ultraviolent. There's actually a magazine called Ultraviolent. That's that's a thing. It's right next to McCall's. Yeah, right. Uh, there's a photo gallery, uh, the trailer, trailers for other movies. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. I shouldn't. No one by, has any real right to genuinely like this film, but I genuinely enjoyed watching it, despite admitting it's not a good movie. Let's move on to what is a very good movie. Although a lot of people, I suspect, even people who think they've seen a lot of the horror classics, have never seen a bucket of blood, which a is bucket of blood. Not only a Roger Corman directed film from 1959, uh, one of a series of black comedies that he was directing. I think he did Little Shop of Horrors immediately after he did this. If yeah, I'm not they mistaken. had. As a matter of fact, it was Little Shop is a rewriting of Bucket of Blood. Oh, okay, that Little, I didn't realize. Yeah, Little Shop was basically them going, "Hey, we have the time to turn around another movie real quick." Why don't we take the script that we just wrote and just change everything? Huh. Let's change the setting of the business. Let's change what the what the uh, thing is that's driving business. Right. In Bucket of Blood, you have this nebbish guy that uh, played by the great Dick Miller. Played by Dick Miller, who's uh, who's working as a busboy in a really hep cat beatnik uh, coffee bar, and he wants to be part of the scene so bad. Um, one night he accidentally kills a cat and covers it in plaster. And then suddenly the next day he finds himself, uh, the toast of the, uh, the art world. Um, all the, he's the, he's the, he's the new, um, hip guy at the, at the coffee house. Um, much like little shop, there's only so long he can keep it up before his boss, figures out what he's doing, you know, and then and it doesn't take long for other people to get suspicious. Okay, now I see it. Um, yeah. yeah. It's uh its structure is was was definitely recycled later. Charles B. Griffith, man, 
as a screenwriter, so underappreciated. And I think the reason why is when his movies came out, I I don't think that in horror, um, irony didn't exist, and there weren't a lot of horror comedies. Oh, and he did but Death you watch Race Two Thousand like, as well. You watch Death Race Two Thousand. Um, you watch you watch um, Creature from the Haunted Sea, which is hysterical. Uh, and a lot of those movies for the longest time, growing up reading about those movies in sci-fi magazines and monster magazines, they were always classified as bad. Like, oh, so bad it's good, or put on the level of like an Ed Wood movie. And when you watch them with like 2019 eyes, you're like, no, Charles B. Griffith was really, really funny. And almost closer to the kind of writer that you would see nowadays, like writing sketch comedy or writing like uh, you know st- you know cartoons or something like that. Um, very very intentional. Yeah, I, re- the, the, the comedy in his stuff is intentional. He's very aware of the it. The review from Blu-ray.com yeah. says, "If this had been come out from France, which was during their Nouveau period, we'd still be hailing it as a, a masterpiece classic. But yeah. because it was a Roger Corman low-budget drive-in film, it was largely ignored for years." Yeah, <laughs> I love this movie, and I've I have loved this movie for a while. Uh, this is a really nice package on it. Probably the yeah. best. Uh, the well, it probably it is the best release of it that's ever been issued. Well, it's Olive Films who has a very small part of their production department, which is determined to do the Criterion treatment for whatever movies they deign worthy of, and they don't do it very often. It's like maybe just a few f- titles a year, but this is one of the ones they deign to give that super badass treatment to, mm-hmm. uh, and it is impressive with a with a full slip cover. A ton of bonus features. I mean, ridiculous amount. By far, the best looking and sounding this movie has ever been. It seems to me that they got a lot of access from um, the documentary, That Guy, Dick Miller. Um, some of yeah. the interviews and stuff that may have been cut up for the film are here in their entirety. Yeah, the audio commentary is by the director of that movie. Oh, okay. Well, that that makes sense, then. <laughs> but, yeah, there's... Um, there's just a, a shit ton of stuff that I think, even if you're not totally sold on the movie itself, just knowing more about this period of time with Corman, about Dick Miller's career, there's this is kind of one of those, this would be a great little piece to have in your library just because it's so representational of a specific slice of cinema history. Yeah, uh, and, and like I said, if you do like this film, and I'm not as crazy about it as you are, but I did enjoy it. This is my first time ever seeing. It. Oh, cool. Um, and I did enjoy it. And mainly, Dick Miller is just playing a wonderful nebbish. We're so used. He most of his career seems he was always playing very small or supporting characters, but obviously was in a lot of movies that way. Yeah, this may be the only lead role I've ever seen Dick Miller in. I'm sure he had others, but I can't think of one. It's one of a few. Um, <laughs> The other thing that it does really well is is its send up of a very specific scene, like it, yeah. it's very specific to a time and place, uh, late fifties, early sixties. The beatniks, the beatniks, and a lot of the humor is very pointed at that scene. Some of it still carries, uh, some of it still carries impact today. I, re- I especially like the line where his boss goes, yeah, you're an artist now. Take out the garbage. <laughs> uh, I was just like, you know, things like that that still carry uh, carry their humor to today. Um, but, I, but one of the other selling points to me is, again, I think even the world that it's set in was so specific to that time period. Um, it's one of the few uh, – it's one of the few things that – took a satirical look at what was going on at that time. And, and that also provides an interesting time capsule. Yeah. Uh, I think we largely agree. This is a good one and, and maybe the pick of the week. I don't know. We'll have to see. 
Um, next up is Diamantino. Man, our local uh, representation distribution company here, Fonz PR, had a hold of this one when it came out just like a month ago, and we're trying really hard to get people to go see it. Yeah, like really hard. And they had like uh, like screenings locally that uh, I could not make it to, but I, I one of the reasons because I saw it's coming out on Blu-ray almost immediately from Kino Lober, who I usually can get stuff from. So I was like, you know what? I'll just watch the the home release. And here we are with said Blu-ray. This is an odd film that is not going to be everyone's taste. This feels like a film that would have played Fantastic Fest, like, this year. Yeah. Specifically. Because it's kind of a gender-bending, crazy, almost undefinable, sort of sexy comedy of, of... very of with like sixties spy themes thrown into it. I think it's supposed to be a satire. Ultimately, yeah. at the end of the day, I think it's supposed to be a satire. It's this soccer star. He's like the biggest soccer star in Portugal. The, the titular Diamantino. Yeah. And he's hanging out one day, chilling on his yacht, and he sees a boat of refugees, and it affects him so deeply that he borks a big game and his career is completely ruined because he can't stop thinking about he he just he yeah he he screws up in a huge career defining moment um can't stop thinking about refugees becomes the laughing stock of the world memes are created because of his crying um and he ends up taking up with a refugee who poses as a boy so that he can continue this love affair with this Refugee with who's not actually a refugee home. Who's not actually a refugee because the she's posing. Okay, she's posing as a refugee boy. It's a police officer or whatever the French Secret Service is. Right, right. I have leads that say that Diamantino is involved with some sort of illicit money laundering or something with over uh, overseas banks, and so they the one girl is a cop sends her girlfriend who's also a cop into pose as a boy. Yeah, Uh, and Diamantino is. Fortunately for the cops, as thick as a brick, he is about as he's adorably stupid, <laughs> to put it mildly. He likes everything that's cute. He's narcissistic, but almost in kind of an adorable way. Yeah, <laughs> and there's and there's also a subplot involving the cloning of Diamantino. Yeah, uh, where there's a secret organization that's trying to create Diamantino clones. Yeah, uh, because they want the, like, I guess it's Portugal. Yeah. Um, they want their whole soccer team to just be clones of the greatest soccer player in the world so it can prove that Portugal is the greatest country in the world, and that way they can get rid of all the refugees and immigrants. Because there is, somehow, a message underneath all this that's sort of anti-Brexit, anti-like, like, anti-anti-refugee, if you will, uh, but the movie is just so goddamn goofy, it's really hard to take any sort of message out of it seriously. I genuinely did enjoy this because it constantly kept me going. I never would have seen that coming next in a billion years. I mean, never to the point where the plot takes a left turn that you don't understand what just happened, but just weird turns. I mean, my favorite aspect of all of this is whenever he's playing and in the moment, he pictures not other people on the field, but giant like 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 elephant sized Pomeranians adorably running around him. Mm-hmm. And there are several scenes of that that I gotta admit I was like, now that I would get a t shirt of. <laughs> uh, and then towards the end it gets into the gender bendingness in such a bizarro, goofy way. 
I, I don't know. I found this very enjoyable, but I can see how it, I'm thinking it wasn't John Golson's thing. It was not John Golson's thing. <laughs> um, I found it kind of insufferable. I didn't think that it was clever enough to be as absurd or surreal as it was going for. It, 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 um, it felt like they were just throwing things against the wall. I don't think that they made a hell of a lot of thematic sense or were really funny or clever enough to uh, significantly enhance the movie in any way. Okay. Um, I, I yeah, I found it. I found it kind of tiresome. Um, I, you know, it's definitely unusual, um, but it was a real. Uh, it was a real challenge, I think, for me to for me to get all the way through. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's it's it is uh, it's a little it's it's funny because I like weird stuff, so it's hard for me to articulate why something with all this like kind of surreal imagery and absurdity didn't work for me over something else that maybe does. And again, I just don't think it's quite smart enough about any particular thing that it touches on. Okay. I think I think if it were a degree smarter, then some of that absurdity would work for me. But when a movie is absurd and and doesn't feel particularly smart, it's that's that's kind of a losing combo for me. So all right, fair. I, I found it very enjoyable, and I expected to tolerate it. But different strokes for comedies for sure, yeah. more than almost any other type of. Thing. And you and I don't disagree too often. No, but that one hit my funny bone in the right yeah. way. I liked its absurdity. Uh, next up, we have a film neither one of us particularly cared for, despite some very positive reviews at some foreign film festivals, which is In the Isles. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you were telling me before this so, started. What did you say? You thought this I, movie was pranking yeah, you? <laughs> I, said, I said, there's something in the stack that feels like someone was actually playing a prank on me. Like... I was going to put this on and watch all two hours of it. At the end, somebody was going to come out and be like, ha ha, we got you. It wasn't even a film. <laughs> this is a movie about a, it's a German film about a guy that gets a, he, he comes from the streets kind of, he has a, a bad past and he gets a job learning how to operate a forklift at like a Costco style grocery store, mm. um, where he makes friends and, and sort of gains fulfillment from sorta. the <laughs> life of, Operating a forklift, yeah, and, and that's and like, it. And it's over two hours long. And I was like, "Really? It's like, one of those. Where's like- the surprise? The other, the other thing is, and you know this from film festivals. There's a thing where, and I, and I've seen it happen where you can go, if this were in English, nobody would like this freaking movie. Yeah, and I feel like that's the case with this one. I went and you know I did my little search where I'm like. You got to be kidding me! Let me look and see what people are saying on Letterboxd, and it was like four stars, four and a half stars, five really? stars, and I was like, "Are you serious? What are like, they seeing in this? That it's just a, it's a wonderful, beautiful slice of life." And no, I'm just it's like, not. This is like Larry Crown for German people. Like, this is this is not this is. This does not deserve the praise that it's been There's, given. When it first starts, I'm like, well, this is well shot. Yeah. They do some really interesting camera work right the It has right the guy from Transit, which we watched. It has yeah. the, uh, um, I don't know her name, but Franz she's the lead. Wardowski. In, the lead from Tony Erdman, and I really like Tony Erdman. Uh, Sandra Huller. Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. It has an umlaut in it. I'm never clear about that, because I'm a white guy who went to American schools. And yeah. We, they just okay. don't teach us that stuff. Um, <laughs> so, no excuses. I know. It's my own fault. I'm lazy. 
But yeah, I mean, Berlin, it won a prize at the Berlin International Film uh, Festival. It's like, come on, man, what the fuck? Because nothing happens in this movie. I have no idea what, if any, message we, they were. it was trying to get across. At first, you're like, oh, so this guy, ooh, his dangerous past looks like he's hiding all his tattoos, so he's probably like a neo-Nazi that doesn't want to be, which he pretty much is, formally, you know, tough guy. Uh, he's got a crush on, on Sandra Huller, who, 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 uh, like doesn't even know he exists in there. It kind of has all the makings of a possibly adorable little meat cute that ends up going to some dark places. So I'm like, ooh, let's see where this goes. And the answer is it goes absolutely nowhere. Like there's a point where he like breaks into her house and you're like, oh, finally, here we go. Over an hour, well over an hour into this movie, mind yeah. you. Nothing happens. <laughs> Like, I mean, even by the end, I'm like, that's it? Most of the film is dedicated to him winning over the veteran forklift drivers by displaying forklift skills. Yeah. That's most of the most of the two-hour runtime. I saw one of you saying, it. it is, at 125 minutes, it is relatively free of incident. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say relatively is not putting it strongly enough. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're... One of those people who just fetishistic about forklifts. <laughs> then yeah. I don't know. They do show the famous like work safety video, horror video for a second, which I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I yeah. saw that. They do show that. But yeah, I can't. And I just out of like the the part of me that says I want to cause no other human being harm. I must strongly advise you all to stay away from in the aisles, unless you're just literally suffering from the worst insomnia you've ever had. In which case, this might be great. Or considering a career. In forklifting. Yes. What do you call that? We'll call it forklifting. Forklifting. Okay. Uh, Next up, we have Pasolini. This is, I believe, the most most recent or second most recent Abel Ferrar film. But it's this is as far as I can tell, its first home home release. This is Abel Ferrar. Of course, has done a lot of very famous cult films like Miss Forty Five. Some films that went from cult to being considerably more popular than that, like Bad Lieutenant. Um, what was it? He had one at least that was huge. I'm trying to think what it was. Maybe it is Bad Lieutenant. I'm thinking. Oh of. gosh. Oh, King of New York. Yeah. Uh, that was was a really big hit for him way back in the day. But he's always been making interesting, weird, hard to penetrate films. Like I saw The Addiction for the first time by him recently, which I'm like, I like it. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. It's very hard to penetrate. And Pasolini is no exception. Uh, you, sure, you've got the wonderful William Defoe playing the role of film director Paolo Pasolini here in the last couple weeks of his life, right after he's finished shooting 120 Days of Sodom, a film that, if you've ever seen, um, well, first off, I salute you for getting all the way through it. <laughs> it's distressing. But... uh caused great controversy when it came out. And he was on his way to filming a movie that he claimed was going to be even more disturbing and upsetting. And that movie is In the Aisles. (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. Which would have been like, what, really? That was kind of surprising. No, it was Nightwish. Seriously. No, it was not. But it's just him very closely angled towards just him and his viewpoint of what's going on around him. And with the the press and his negative reaction towards being forced to deal with them at all, he with his homosexuality. There's some, by the way, graphic homosexual sequences in this film, like like triple X graphic homosexual yeah. sequences. So if if you do not want to see triple X sexual activity, don't watch this movie. Um, and it 
concludes with his horrible death, him being murdered, which, by the way, is still up for question. They don't really know what exactly happened. I mean, they know what happened to him. They just don't know who did it. This film makes a decision that seems based on nothing, but this was the director's idea of this was one way to do it. (laughs) But the truth is, many people believe his death was very politically motivated, and the film makes although not choosing to go that way, makes an argument for that in the sense that, yes, people were upset at Pasolini after Sodom and some of his other films. The problem is, this is super dry, and I found outside of Defoe's relatively restrained performance just not a very interesting movie to watch. I think it's a tone thing. It's, It's certainly not a life story type of movie. I don't think it really gets into any deeper... Uh, you know, he gives a lot of, he pontificates a lot. Um, he gives little speeches and things about his philosophies and things like that, but it doesn't really even feel like you get to know him as a person because a lot of those feel like the kind of answers he would give press and interviews, um, that are just sort of transplanted into the film as dialogue. Right. It's interesting in that you, you would assume that whoever made, uh, Sallow was is like a sick, sick individual. I think the film does an interesting thing in that it normalizes him in a film where where other characters deify him, um, but it never paints him as particularly like sick or or perverted or anything like that. He's just sort of a a working artist, despite really um, liking extremely young boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, uh, but I, I just mean the way that the the tone of the film and the way that he's kind of treated in it. Yeah. But then there's like other stuff about like there's weird like the I didn't quite grasp some of the it felt like Christ allegory stuff going on where like follow the star and that's where he is. And I like, think some of that was more in relation to the themes of Pasolini's own work at yeah. the time, but I don't know because I'm, I've, I've not. never watched any Pasolini. So okay. I've watched some Abel Ferrara, but I've not watched Pasolini films. I thought this was okay. I don't know if I were a bigger Pasolini fan, maybe I might like it more. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, I think it's specific to, the interests of Ferrara and and Willem Dafoe to some extent, and Willem Dafoe being somebody who's been sort of amused for Ferrara in the past and been somebody that is always game to do what Ferrara wants him to do, which is probably why he cast him, because you have also a weird uh, like multicultural bilingual cast where Willem Dafoe is you know giving his dialogue in English and a lot of other people in the film are subtitled. Um, but I think, again, that's because of their working relationship, that it's just a matter of trust. Like, hey, come make this movie with me. Um, I, it's, it's, it's a movie that is not bad, but I didn't, I didn't care for it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it. Other people will probably like it a lot more than me. It's, it's just not my bag. But I, I don't think that it's I, – I wouldn't say don't watch this or not recommend it. Yeah, it's – I, I think the same problem, we both have the same problem that we have all but no pr- prior experience with watching Pasolini films. Yeah. Um, and I this is the type of movie that feels like you're constantly missing something. You know, you're like, well, why did they focus on that? Well, what was that? And it was probably referential to Pasolini films or, or, or styles that we should recognize. I did not. And so I just kind of felt like I was just going through the motions of 
trying to enjoy a film that was not meant for me at all. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. Uh, there is a 22-minute conversation between Abel Ferrara and William Defoe, which many people probably think alone is worth owning this for, two very interesting people um, talking about the real Pasolini and the decisions they made based on what is true, what is not known whether or not it's true, what were straight-up lies, and how why they decided to incorporate what they did into the film. Uh, there's a six-minute behind-the-scenes of Pasolini uh, featurette, and there's a 10-page uh, illustrated booklet with Brad Stevens, the critic, his essay, We're All in Danger, Abel Ferrar's Pasolini. Yeah, um, I'd be really curious to talk to somebody who does really get this stuff, who loved this, to get what their take is on why it worked really well for them. Because for me, I just had no idea. What did work for me was Kino Classics re-release, relatively recent re-release, because I think less than two years ago this came out on Blu-ray for the first time, of The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, a film that I was completely unfamiliar with until... Basically, Kino put it up for offer, and I looked it up. I was like, Jesus Christ, How I feel like everyone should have heard of this movie by now. My wife knew what it was. <laughs> I don't know how she knew, and I didn't well. know. But I did not know. It's a 1978 Australian drama that is considered to be one of the all-time great Australian films. Um, like, right up there with Picnic on Hanging Rock. But... It never quite made the transfer over to the rest of the world the way that movie did. Uh, it is based on a true, uh, novel, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, uh, which was an enormously popular novel as well, um, Booker Prize nominated, uh, novel from 1972, uh, which is based on the real life of Jimmy Governor, who many remarked on his passage from obedient aborigine to the white, abusive white man to trying to set off a revolution leader unsuccessfully as being the demarcation point where the whites really went full on like racist pieces of shit in Australia. And I think 1901, um, but it's a fascinating performance, uh, by the lead playing Jimmy Blacksmith, uh, Tom E. Lewis, who, who did go on as well to, uh, appear in many other films after that, it's a distressing film to watch, no question, as we watch him steadily being, despite being like a hard worker and doing his best and just putting up with the in nonstop, just really hardcore racism from the white people around him. When he finally breaks and goes full on, like essentially serial killer, <laughs> you know, you're still like, yeah, fuck Whitey. <laughs> get him, get him all. I, I actually, I found this a movie I want to show other people and see what they have to say about it. It feels like one of those movies, like it's the Australian 12 Years a Slave. It's very upsetting on some levels. Yeah. Some people, this is going to be deeply triggering to watch, but it's an incredibly well-made film. I mean, it's so well shot. It's so well acted. Uh, I, I'm really glad that I actually saw this, uh, finally, despite n- never knowing that I was supposed to, it, it won best actor in a supporting role, best original musical school score, best actress in a lead role, uh, and was nominated for nine more awards at the Australian Film Institute in 1978 and was nominated for the Palm Door at the 1978 Cannes Film Festival. But John, you've been very quiet on this one, mainly because I've been talking nonstop. <laughs> what did you think of it? I really liked it. I did think it felt like a, a an underseen classic. Um, I think just structurally, I think the first half where the oppression builds, where you get these like 
almost like vignette moments of him working for different people, doing different jobs and seeing his treatment and that, that steady build towards a high pressure situation in which, you know, there's an outburst of violence. I found that first hour of the film, all that lead up just expertly executed. Uh, it was riveting. Um, the second hour where he's on the run, um, I did not think was as propulsive or as uh, dread-filled or tense as the first hour of the film. I think the back the back acre of it um, uh, is just it's just a little too. There's too much air in it. There's too much kind of wandering from place to place and that sort of thing because you know that the inevitability of you 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 kind of can feel the inevitability of his situation. Um, that it's probably not going to end well. Um, so it takes it takes its time then from that point on uh, getting to the place where you know it reaches a conclusion. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I felt like I felt like you could almost draw a line down the center of the film as to which as to like which parts were firing on all cylinders and which mm. parts were uh, a little bit more you know, like clumsy is such a strong word and I don't even mean clumsy. I just mean, uh, the from a narrative standpoint, I don't know if I know why the back half has as much room to breathe as it does when the first half is so propulsive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last half feels like it should be the third act, not the whole second half of the film. I'll yeah. give you that. Uh, it would have tightening it up wouldn't have hurt, but I was with it a hundred percent personally. Oh, it's very, very uh, as good. It gets bloodier and darker and he's going more and more down a path that there's just absolutely no returning from either, uh, in a sense of, uh, legally or in a sense of, uh, his own soul as it were. I, I found this deeply engaging. Uh, there are two versions of this here. There's uh, with two discs. One's the international version, which is 117 minutes, and one is a, uh, the Australian version. I watched the Australian version. I did too. Uh, 122 minutes. Uh, they both come with. Um, well, the, the Australian version has the audio commentary with the director, Fred Fred Shepsey uh, Shepsey. The the first first disc has an interview with the director and the DP Ian Baker, an interview with the star Tommy Lewis. Uh, the second disc, disc has a special introduction by Fred Shapisi, uh, and then there's a booklet essay by a film critic. Shapisi's got quite a few uh, really solid to great films on his resume. Uh, I recognized his name immediately from Roxanne, right? And um, I was kind of shocked because in my mind's eye, I'd always. And, he, and when I looked at his resume, he's done more than comedy, but I thought of him immediately as a comedy director, I think, because I associated him with Roxanne. We actually just, like, I think The Last Digital Noise reviewed another film by him, The Devil's Playground, which mm-hmm. was his first film, and we did not care for it. Okay. But uh, <laughs> interesting. I just didn't just now realizing that. But yeah, Iceman. Yeah, Iceman's his, really good. Um, with with uh, Timothy Hutton, The Russia House, uh, Six Degrees of Separation, uh, Fierce Creatures. He's done a lot of movies. Um, but yeah, this is, seems to stand out as his, his, Mm -hmm. you know, the one he'll be remembered for. No, no question about it. Next up, we have one that no one will be remembered for, which is I Spy. (laughs) Just an unfortunate chapter in a whole slew of let's take an old television show, take new comedy actors and put them in it as a theatrical film. There are just tons of these being made. And this is definitely... Not the lowest point of all of those, but it's pretty low. <laughs> Dude, this is the... So, this year, Eddie Murphy had Showtime, Adventures of Pluto Nash, and 
I Spy in one after the other. Oh, he boy. had spring, summer, fall. That was his 2000, what, 2002, 2004? I don't even remember Showtime anymore. That was the Robert De Niro where he, he, oh, there's yeah. an actor that was trying to be a cop, so he does like a ride along with yeah, the cop. Yeah, that was not good. But that was still better, that was still better than this. Yeah. And I, I, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll ride with The Adventures of Pluto Nash. It's one of those movies yeah. I'm like, yeah, I, it is bad. But it is one of those movies. I was, I'm like, this is. It was like had that Pootie Tang thing where like it's bad, but it keeps making me laugh anyway. Or just how oddball it is. Like I, I haven't seen it since it originally came out, so maybe I'll watch it now and go, man, maybe you watch hot. it now. But know what the budget is when you watch it, yeah. and you'll go, what in the world? Like somebody <laughs> pocketed all of the money spent on this movie. <laughs> well, I Spy, uh, which is based on the old television show, which was a monster hit at the time, and also was considered to be quite important at the time, Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. Yes, this is before Bill Cosby and all the bad stuff back when he was America's dad. Um, it was the first leading role by a black actor on television, like ever, like as a playing a super positive character. That was a huge thing on an equal footing with a white guy. Um, and people made a big deal about it as rightfully they should at the time. And it went on for some time. So putting together this, really has barely anything in common with it. Comedy excuse to put Eddie Murphy and Owen Wilson in the same movie together with Owen as a kind of, not incompetent, but very Owen Wilson-y spy (laughs) Uh, who is told, well, you got to work with this famous, like, narcissistic boxer, Eddie Murphy. Played by Donkey from Shrek. (laughs) Like my donkey from Shrek. Like literally donkey from Shrek. Because there's this super rich guy played, of course, like every villain was in every terrible Hollywood movie at this time, Malcolm McDowell, Mm -hmm. uh, who is, we believe, stolen this invisible jet and is going to try and auction it off to to uh, evil third world country. And you have to, we basically said, hey, do you want to be a spy, famous narcissistic boxer? Well, here, team up with our guy, we'll send you. And it's just a clash of the personalities and Owen Wilson learning gradually to get him to do what he wants to do by appealing to his narcissistic side. I mean, this is really putting more work than is necessary into trying to explain what the plot is of this movie. It's a series of really dumb, ham-fisted jokes and badly shot action sequences. Um, what is what, what the... What is up with the, with the uh, the action? What's up with the guns not having muzzle flares? Yeah. Or in the opening scene where, uh, like, Owen Wilson's out in Siberia or the snow or whatever the hell, there's guys with machine guns with the frame of the shot is cropped where you can't see the tips of anybody's guns. Yeah. And so you hear the shooting, but you can't see the shooting. And the, I'm like, why is, is that just a budget that saving way? device? It's awful. Yeah. This is the worst thing in the whole stack. And I know we talk some shit about In the Isles, but there's competent filmmaking on display in In the Isles. And Nike, I'm I'm sorry, Betty Thomas has made movies I've enjoyed in the past, but I Spy is, is straight up garbage. Like, studio garbage from the early 2000s. Yeah, this is one of those that, like, I saw it when it came out, and I remember hating it, but I don't remember anything about it, right? And sometimes you go back and revisit movies you hated that much at the time, and you revisit them, and time has actually been somewhat kind to them. And sort of, oh, there's some adorable parts to it. I certainly encounter that sort of thing from time to time. Not this time. What ha- it's what happens when you get every when every single individual from screenwriter to co-star, main star, director, if everybody treats a film like an obligation, this is exactly what ends up on the screen. Yeah. 
I think everybody was on the same page, and that page was where do you where can I catch this check? <laughs> oh, and did we mention the the super spy who Owen Wilson is jealous of is played by Gary Cole, who for some oh, reason is God. Latino. What was up? He's that? supposed to be like a dashing Mexican, it's awful. or Spanish guy, and it's not like we're it's not like this took this filmed in like the year nineteen sixty two, right? It's like <laughs> it's it. It feels to me like an in-joke, because she... So Betty Thomas would have worked with him on the Brady Bunch movies. Yeah. And I can't help but think that he was... Because he kind of does an Antonio Banderas. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think that she was like, oh, your Antonio Banderas impersonation is really funny. I'm going to put it in this I Spy movie. Right. Well, there is a line that feels very like, oh, shit, maybe we should throw that in there, where they're like, he's not even Spanish, someone says at one point. And you're like... Okay, which makes no sense in the context of him supposedly being yeah. this unassailable super spy. <laughs> You're like, why would he suddenly just pretend to be Spanish? <laughs> I, I just, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't, this is not, this is not recommended. No. Um, if you are one of those people out there who are like, oh, come on, guys, I like Die Spy. And hey, man, once again, is, there's something out there for everyone, I guess. Weirdly, Mill Creek excised all of the bonus features because the original DVD release of this actually had a lot of bonus <laughs> not features even on it. Stuff. Yeah, I know. It's like the most, like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> like, put it on the Walmart shelves re release of a film yeah. for somebody who remembers back to their high school days when they, much like today, had absolutely no taste or ability to gauge whether a movie was good or not. Like, oh, yeah, I spy. I love that movie. I was drinking a 40. Uh, yeah. Next up, we have another Mill Creek film that really is worth revisiting, which is True Believer. Now, I know James Woods is a human trash fire, but he was in some great fucking movies back in the day, for certain. He was the star of arguably my favorite horror movie of all time, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. And True Believer is one of those ones uh, that came out in 1989, I just never got around to seeing. I mean, it's you're like, oh, it's a courtroom drama, and this was kind of the, a very big period for courtroom dramas, <laughs> the late 80s early 90s and I'd seen enough to know they were not overall my shtick but I actually kind of really got into this one which is he's a totally burnout like ex ex 60s like rabble rouser who became a uh, who was a civil rights attorney but now he's you know he's got a ponytail it's tied back he chain smokes cigarettes and weed uh, he's got a dirty filthy office where he just deals with basically defending drug dealers where he's like oh it's the last constitutional you know he's basically making excuses for still doing anything important he gets a new young legal clerk played by a very young Robert Downey Jr. right out of law school who basically has a case that, that comes to them of a Korean man who was imprisoned in uh, uh, for a gang-related murder. Now in prison, he was a bunch of people were trying to kill him, and he managed to survive and had to kill them to do it. And now he's – basically, they want to put him on trial for that as well. His mother comes to them saying, look – there's no way my son did this original crime. He was railroaded for something. And it turns out, of course, it leads to a huge conspiracy that involves up to the highest levels of power. Uh, and it's kind of absurd when you step back from it. But it's really fun to watch it play out. And I I found it very tautly directed. Uh, Kirkwood Smith is in this, who, because it's Kurtwood Smith, you immediately go, gee, I wonder if he's a bad guy. Of course he is. He's Kurt, He's either red on the 70s show, or he's a bad guy. There is yeah. no in-between. <laughs> Anyone could argue he's a bad guy on the 70s show. Uh, Luis Guzman, very young Luis Guzman, is in this as well. Kurt Fuller. Um, I don't know. I had a really good time with this. 
James Woods is very, very James Woods in this. Um, <laughs> he's very much playing like his first courtroom scene. He's so over the top uh, to the point that he's he's kind of hammy in this. Yeah, you know, this is sort of like uh, watching the movie. It kind of predates uh, Law and Order and shows like that. I think the things that are in this movie now are extremely cliche. Um, they're things that you turn on the TV and you could probably watch a TV show that's very much like this. This movie actually spawned a TV show with Treat Williams in the, uh, in the in the main role. Um, as a movie, it plays kind of like a a movie version of like a Law and Order episode or like one of those courtroom drama episodes. There's something um, through the passage of time. I don't know how cinematic it was in the year 1989. But I know now, um, as television shows have grown more cinematic, it felt like I was watching a pretty good TV episode of, of you know, true, this week's episode of True Belief. I mean, it's a little elevated by the simple fact that it is James Woods and his period when we didn't all hate who we didn't know what a jackass he was in real life, who is so great at chewing up all the scenery yeah, and being and over the definitely top. definitely chews it. Yeah. Uh, this is this is not bad. This is you know it it is a it is in 2019 is it is exactly what it was in 1989, which is this is like a B level uh, studio release adult drama, and it and it works pretty well. Um, you know, it gets the job done. It's not an all time classic, but it, you're not going to regret watching it. You'll be like, that was fun. Uh, and a relatively you know as hammy as Woods is, we've seen performances from. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. as well that kind of can threaten to go hammy. He's actually really subdued in this. Yeah, he's playing um, basically like he's just kind of enthralled to James Woods and annoyed by him. He's playing the straight man to James yeah, Woods' wacky character. And, and and very much dedicated to playing the straight man. He doesn't work to uh, overshadow him in any way whatsoever to the point that Downey's almost forgettable in it, yeah. weirdly enough, which is, which is, I don't think I've ever seen even small parts like weird science and yeah. stuff like that. He's certainly memorable. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything where it's like he could have been anybody. He's, it, it, there's, there's no reason why this had to be played. By I kind of remember Jr. some of the Robert Downey Jr. and I forget the other actor's name. He was also in Nightmare on Elm Street too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, the, the two bullies, some oh, of yeah. their lines better than the re- the bigger lines in the movie. I mean, I I can't count how many times in my life I've walked into a party and gone bar bar. <laughs> uh, anyway, next up we have Into the Ashes. This is a a new release that I was mainly interested into in because it had Frank Grillo in it, who is sort of having a moment right now, um, and kind of narrowly it felt like he very narrowly missed being a much bigger part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe like one of those fuck why did I say yes to Crossbones when I probably could have walked right into the Punisher yeah yeah which is the role everybody wanted him to play but he's definitely having a moment regardless and I think that was largely due to the uh, the two films in the um what series horror series uh, the Purge series that he was definitely the thing that made those elevated like oh wow kind of like this. Frank Grillo is amazing in these. So I'm like, I'll check out anything with Frank Grillo at this point. Luke Grimes, not having quite as much of a moment, but he is technically our lead star here. And a guy who's out of jail for, uh, um, he's trying to walk uh, uh, a very straightforward line uh, in his life with his wife, but his old crew shows up, murders his wife, uh, 
<laughs> and uh, then basically he's, you know, basically gets into, well, I'm going to get revenge. And it turns into sort of a bloody B-rate modern thriller <laughs> with some great shots in it, but that's weirdly unnecessarily nonlinear at points, I thought. We're like, wait, what is happening now? I don't know. What did you think of this one? I think it goes for Blue Ruin vibes, but doesn't succeed because I don't think it has anything really to say. Um, but it's certainly not going for, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest action movie guy. And certainly when it comes to DTV action, I'm almost always wary of it because it, you're taking one of my kind of my least favorite, one of my least favorite genres. And then you're sort of like, oh, hey, here's something you don't that it takes a lot for you to like and we're going to make it worse. <laughs> it's like my expectations for DTV action stuff are always really, really low. Yeah. It was it was pretty immediate in this movie, uh, you know, five minutes in that I was like, okay, whew, like this is not, uh, um, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not like an Expendables knockoff or anything no. like that. I or was like, like one is- of the films we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Out. I'm like, this was yeah. This is not a, a Czechoslovakian yeah. tax break it, movie. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't want to be one of those. It yeah. wants to be, as you said, it, more of that sort it, of southern gothic, yeah. like like crime film with an arty sense, mm-hmm. like Blue Ruin. It's just nowhere near as good as that. Yeah, it, you know the the act of the act of violence that kind of kicks off the movie happens very very early, and the act of resolution happens very 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 late. And in between, nothing much happens. Yeah. And that's difficult. Um, there's not much interesting, uh, there's not much interesting meat in the, in the sandwich from sort of the, the opening act of violence to the, to the resolution. And you know how it's, you, you, you assume you, and, and you get, you would guess correctly if, you know, there's a big shootout at the end, but boy, does it take its time getting there. And I don't know why. It, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like it was spending that time really, like, doing any character building, really, or anything like that. Like, I, I can't for the life of me um, figure out why it was so uh, kind of just bloated from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most interesting character in it is Grillo, and the film doesn't spend an awful lot of time with him. And the, you can tell the director knows he's by far the most interesting character in this film. It kind of reminds me of another film. I can't remember if I did it with you or Aaron recently. There was a Western where Cusack was playing. Me. And I was playing the sort of Grillo-like role. Yeah. And the director knew enough to let Cusack run with it. It felt like it was probably a smaller role to Cusack was like, I, I can play this. I can do this. I got some cool ideas. It felt like that kind of movie. We were like, yeah, he, he, it's watchable mainly for that guy. And they let him have plenty of moments. Here, Grillo's so in and out of the movie. And when he is in it, he's pretty good. But the main character is so flat and uninteresting. There's just a, by the end, and it is a, a cool final, like, like series of like gunfights mm-hmm. going on. But even so, it's just kind of much sound and fury, if you will, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that it's. I don't think that it's like capital B bad. It's, it's just not great. Yeah. I think if you're in the mood for something like this, you want something that's a little machismo and a little, a little violent. Uh, it certainly fits the bill, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's better than I thought it was going to be. But at the same time, it's, it's still an imperfect vehicle. Mill Creek put out yet another, we have a couple of Mill Creeks this year, another almost ran, if you will, film that one of those that like, there's so much about the film duplicity. That's great. 
it's a shame that it's not a great movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know? what's up with this? Well, I think the problem is that they're trying to make a con, con movie that's also a sort of cool romantic caper that should really be funny. And it's just never funny. It's not not because it's trying to and failing. It just has no interest in it. But everything here feels like it's surrounding about something that characters that are going to be funny and are going to have funny moments. But instead, uh, the director, Tony Gilroy, wants to make it a one of those serious con movies that has layer after layer after layer of things to discover until you finally get to the big shocker twist at the end. And yet, no, I mean, I didn't see the end coming, but for one of those reasons is because it's so fucking convoluted. The story is deeply hard to follow. There's no denying that Clive Owen and Julia Roberts, uh, who play uh, an MI6 agent and a CIA officer, who uh, are, are the, the main sort of like off-and-on couple pulling a con here, uh, are engaging, but nowhere near as engaging as you would think. Right? I mean, weirdly, the couple du jour in this film are Tom Wilkinson and Paul Giamatti, who are the two sort of really fucked up heads of corporations who uh, both of these characters are are working with the the titular heroes are working, not titular, but the um, uh, Clive Owen and Julia Roberts are working with separately trying to rip off both of them. And whenever those two guys are together, which is so way too rarely, is fucking magic. They're both great. I mean, even when they're not in the same room, their seething hatred for each other is just fucking fantastic. There's an opening scene in this that is the one truly funny moment in this movie, where it's just the two of them in slow motion beating the shit out of each other on an airfield. Yeah. I was laughing really hard. Well, I had to go back and rewind it and watch it again. I was did like, that was awesome. I did see this in theaters. And I have no idea what I thought about it when it came out. When I when it came out, I, I remember liking it. And my friends did not like it, and I, they thought it was boring. And I was like, oh, no, you know, I, I dig it. I like it a lot. I think it's, you know, twisty-turny and enjoyed it quite a bit. And on a re... I can certainly... I think I get why it's, it hasn't stayed in the conversation in any significant way. It is kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is very convoluted. I also think that it doesn't clearly... It takes its time clearly defining the stakes of the players involved. Um, so, again, not to get too in the weeds in regards to, like, screenplay structure, because I feel like I've done that a couple times on this episode, but I think I think the stakes of what, what the characters want, what their ultimate goals are, needs to be established clearly and early, and I don't think that this movie does a good job of making that a clear... Um, it, it also basically you have because this, it's nonlinear. Yeah, so many of the, the the you know the rug being pulled out from under you moments in here are because it's shot nonlinearly, which is kind of a cheap trick to do more than once in a film, and this does it multiple times. <laughs> where it's yeah. like, oh no, what you didn't see was go back to here and let's look at these scenes with a little bit extra, so we saw what what it was really about. And that just doubles down on how fucking convoluted and confusing this whole thing is. Listen to me giving Tony Gilroy story structure notes. <laughs> uh, but I, but I do think it's a case of like, you know, sometimes maybe your intent is in the screenplay, and over time stuff just gets edited out and whittled down. Where maybe it was in there stronger to begin with, and it just over time got squeezed out because you essentially have these, unlike other spy movies where it is countries so you get a clearer sense of good versus evil um in this film it's 
it's corporations. So it'd be like you're watching almost like Johnson and Johnson against Colgate or whatever. And they're like fighting it out. And so it's all about like, uh, corporate secrets and things like that. So strictly a lot of it is relegated to the world of like just competition, like, like corporate competition. Um, and I think, um, I think to some degree, maybe clearer lines even between who to root for, good guys and bad guys. But I think because Julia Roberts works for one of them and Clive Owen works for the other one of them, that it wants to like have its cake and eat it too and kind of present both. All the characters are equal. Mm. Like Giamatti and Wilkinson are equal. And Roberts and... Uh, uh, help me with his freaking name. Who, who, uh, Owen? Ro- Owen, yes. Clive Owen. Um that they're also kind of like equals, you know, they're all, everybody's a flip side of the coin. I don't know. It's uh, something is not working in this film. I'm not sure what. It's also that it wants to make the romantic comedy aspects of it, not comedy, but romance parts of it work, but it's constantly has these two, like one of the running things is they can never really trust each other. And it asks the audience, what do you think? Do you think one of them is trying to fuck over each other? So you can never get into the romantic angle of it because you're more than half convinced that yes, one of them is trying to fuck over each other the entire time. And the movie wants you to go back and forth about who you think that is. And like I said, there's just too many plates spinning at once at this film. And it's got all the slickness, well shot, beautiful people score of something like oceans 11 and all the right pieces. It just tries to cram too much in and never has fun with it. It it always, I I like, I was going to quote Peter Travers from Rolling Stone. The best quote I can think of. Gilroy and his stars make it elegant fun to be fooled, but they sure as hell make you work for it. (laughs) Which I think is pretty dead on accurate. Um, This is Mill Creek, so no bonus features once again. Another film that previously came out on Blu-ray with bonus features, but nothing here. This is the cheap version. Uh, Next up, we have that other movie we were talking about, that uh, direct-to-DV, direct-to-video action movie that is one of those films that John Golson completely dreads. When I put it in front of him, and all he had to do was see on the title, oh, fuck, this Dolph Lundgren is the biggest star in this? Yeah. This does not bode well. I think even with this one, I don't even think there's a synopsis. Let me, I don't even think there's a synopsis on the back of it. It's called. No, there's not. Yeah. Here's, the so the tracker. back of it, you know, typically you look at the back of a video package, you're going to see pictures from the film, and yeah. it's going to describe what the movie's about or have some quotes. The back of this, if I can describe it to people, just has a picture of Dolph Lundgren standing there. Yeah. And then one sentence. He's come to bury his past and his enemies. That's <laughs> that's all you should... That's what you get. That's really kind of the plot of the movie. Um, one thing I couldn't help but notice, despite being called The Tracker, and the film starting with a sort of, here's Dolph Lundgren is an adorable small child somewhere in the Ukraine? I don't know. Wherever he's from. Uh, being taught how to track professionally from his father... There is absolutely no tracking in this movie. <laughs> it is completely irrelevant that he was taught professional tracker skills. Um, I, when the movie starts, it's his family uh, is kidnapped and his wife is and daughter die uh, sort of accidentally during the process of that. By the way, the wife, I didn't even recognize her. It's been so long since I saw her in anything. I was like, oh, my God, that is Anna Fauci. From uh, Cemetery Man, amongst many other things, oh, who was no, like, I didn't pick that up back in the eighties. I, I would, I remember she was wow. pretty much one of the most beautiful women in the entire world. Yeah, just like a goddess, and she still looks fantastic. But I haven't seen her in anything in so long. I, was, I, I looked up her Wikipedia; it's all been Italian stuff that hasn't come here. Yeah, that she's been in, but her career has continued. Anyway, point is, go to years later. Uh, 
he, Dolph Lundgren, has left this town, but he gets a message from a cop that had originally been working the case saying, hey, come back. I think I have some leads. When he gets there, they're like, oh, that cop killed himself. And he's like, that that smells like bullshit. And starts looking into it, teams up with another cop, sort of half-heartedly, uh, and they track down, well, they don't really track anyone because the guys who did the original crime are now doing it again and they're coming after them. So it's like, okay. And it just builds inexorably, dully to the exact type of confrontation that you expect with Dolph Lundgren and, and sidekick murdering every single person and a big, abandoned, probably post-medieval fortress somewhere in Italy. Uh, it's amazing that you could shoot this whole thing in the beautiful countrysides of Italy and make it look like it might as well be Detroit. <laughs> it's so uninterestingly shot. They don't take advantage of any of the scenery or of the the local uh, beautiful things to shoot. It's just gray and drab and dull and lifeless. Dolph Lundgren, who has never really been particularly great at doing action. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, Rocky Four is probably his most competent action role in terms of, hey, I can fight. And a lot of that is about editing. I've never really understood why Lundgren continued on as this huge action star when you're like, the guy from Masters of the Universe? He offers nothing here either. I'm told he's a very nice guy in real life by quite a few people who've talked to him, but this is not going to do anything to add to his legend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was more, it, this was slightly more competent than I expected it to be. Um, it, it is, you know, it's polished and it appears professional. <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, the, you know, there's, there's kind of like dollar store Jason Bourne vibes kind of wafting <laughs> off of this thing. Um, Do they make 50 cent stores. <laughs> <laughs> everything's a quarter. There's, there's flea market Jason Bourne <laughs> vibes coming off of this. Um, yeah, I didn't like it. It was boring and I forgot the details of it almost immediately upon completion of the film. I actually, I actually only clearly remembered the intro and outro um, because of how baffling they were. It, him, it showing like him as a child being trained to track people and then that not really figuring into any of the events that took place and then wrapping up with, you know, book ending with that at, at the end of the movie. Yeah, his tracking is basically like, oh, what's his name? Let me look it up in the phone book. Okay, he's there. Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, if you're the person that's going to, like this or not it, it much like when we watch like awful dtv horror yeah this is awful dtv action and you know if oh dolph lundgren has a new one if that's a question that you find yourself excited to ask then yes he does have a new one <laughs> <laughs> the answer is a, is, is a resounding yes. this exists <laughs> yes um I mean, so you know if it's for you or not i've seen a few i generally don't ask for the lundgren ones i'm like i just never really been a huge fan. I mean... I, I never saw I, the Universal Soldiers, uh, and I know that's like yeah, calling card I saw like well. the first one, and then yeah. I saw whatever one... I saw a 20 minutes of whatever one played Fantastic Fest before I was like, nope, I'm out. People went nuts for that one, too. Uh, it was a secret screening, and people were always like, that's one of the best ones. I'm like, really? Because I was 20 minutes in, I was like, I can't take any more of this, and just left. It's like, this is awful. Yeah. I just... That... Those people, like our dear friend Brian Salisbury, amongst others, who just love that American period of, like, 
not really great at <laughs> at action, but edited to make it look like they are stars. I mean, even some who are genuinely real martial artists, but weren't really great filmic stars, like your Chuck Norris's and your Steven Seagal's and your Jean-Claude Van Damme that, you know, you're like, okay, I put you versus pretty much anyone who's ever been in an Asian action film and you're going to lose in terms of exciting to watch on screen. Yeah. And those movies were just so... I mean, even the best of them sometimes are just so fucking dull to me. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get what the appeal of these were when there were so many better choices just coming out of the foreign market. But whatever. People still... I know people who pick up every Jean-Claude Van Damme film that comes out just so thrilled there's a new one. I'm like, wow, it's a big world for you, man. <laughs> well, here's one for your Lundgren shelf. Yeah. Uh, lastly, we have... The final film out of Fox's X-Men franchise, which really just falls to a tired, ah, fuck it, stop with X-Men Dark Phoenix. I actually was had some hopes for this, if for no other reason, that it was the directorial debut of Simon Kinberg, who was very excited about getting a chance to finally direct, who wrote most of the X-Men movies, good and bad. Um, and he was like, yeah, this is my chance to finally show them what I can do. I mean, I know this universe like nobody else. I'm going to kick this out of the park. And then he made X-Men Dark Phoenix. <laughs> and I'm going to venture so far as to say, this is not great. I already reviewed it on Highly Suspect Reviews, so I'm more interested to hear what you have to say. Um, so here's a confession. I, I read you Facebooking about it, and it was making me laugh out loud multiple times. Yeah, this movie here... Um, I, I don't know why this exists. Um, <laughs> well, we know why it exists. Cha-ching! Yeah. I, my confession is this, and I know that people, I, I, I know people don't agree, but I don't think that Last Stand is that bad. I think when you're watching into the context of the, of the Brian Singer movies, I think it actually fits in fairly well. The finale is sloppy, where everybody's just, like, jumping around in Alcatraz. Yeah. But by and large, I think tonally and visually, it fits with the first two X-Men films. Does it do a great job telling the Dark Phoenix story? Not particularly. Like, it's not a great adaptation of Dark Phoenix. Now, you've sat all these years, and you've heard the complaints about Last Stand... And you know that, like, you're giving this other opportunity to basically redo what you already did the first time. I don't know why you would return to the beats that you returned to the first time. Did you think that it was simply Brett Ratner that screwed it up? Like, that it wasn't your script fundamentally? So you're going to go back and you're going to basically do the same movie you already made all over again? Like, why would you remake The Last Stand instead of remaking Dark Phoenix. Like, why wouldn't you go to the source comics and be like, right. how much of this can I borrow and pull in versus going back to the script that maybe you feel like someone else ruined and being like, all right, we definitely need the scene where she revisits her childhood home and the X-Men try to stop her and her house blows up. We definitely need the scene. You know, there was a lot of that where I'm just like, why are they remaking whole chunks of The Last Stand? Yeah. Why is she going and seeking help from Magneto and then Magneto and his I mean, Mary Ban like going and helping her? There's so much in okay, it. This, like, at least this time it's not a subplot of a film, which it was in, in Last Stand, where you're like, 
you're making Dark Phoenix a subplot? Yeah. Which was just bizarre. And maybe that was a Brett Ratner decision. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I did not enjoy this movie, mostly because I thought it was boring. Unlike Apocalypse, which I didn't like either, um, Apocalypse was like a <laughs> like a roller coaster of shit, <laughs> where like imagine a roller coaster that's half submerged in shit. So you leave the shit, and you're like, okay, yeah, it's getting good again, and then you're like, no, and it dips you back down to the shit. <laughs> like that's that's what Apocalypse is to me. So Apocalypse is like this like back and forth between truly god-awful scenes, and then moments that tease you into, like, okay, maybe this is getting cool now, and then, oh, no, there's bikinis at Auschwitz. Like, this is <laughs> this is bad again. Um, like, it's the only movie I can think of that had, like, it's certainly the only superhero movie that has a 3D crucifixion uh, yeah. in the opening credits. Um, so, but we're not talking about Apocalypse. We're talking about Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix is not as lunatic as Apocalypse is, but, m- man, is it boring. Yeah. Like, there, there was nothing new that happened in this movie. Um, I just didn't. I, I did not enjoy this in a different way that I haven't enjoyed the bad X Men movies because the bad X Men movies have been like X Men Origins Wolverine and Apocalypse to me have the bad stuff has been really really stinky bad. Dark Phoenix is bad in the worst way, which is like. That it's boring. Dark Phoenix is bad, and that it's just like I don't. I would never watch that again. Hmm. I would. I would watch. Or I. I mean, I think Origins is worse, and I would watch it again over. I would watch Dark Phoenix. Again. I can't go with you there because I actually found Origins really dull too. Yeah, uh, I found it extremely boring. Um, I would definitely watch Last Stand or Apocalypse over this any day of the week. Although I think this is a better film than Last Stand. Yeah. I think at Apocalypse, at least the, the half of it with the kids was actually pretty decent. It was just whenever it focused on the bad guys on any level, it was laughably terrible. <laughs> they just did not know how to make that storyline work. This one, when I think of what's good about it, I think about the train scene and even that we've seen stuff done much better. Like there's a train action scene. You're like, okay, I mean, this is watchably cool X Men movie stuff, but that's it. Just characters and there's, we've shouting seen, Gene. We've we've seen much better than that in these things. I am now going to proceed to read John Golson's Facebook tweets Uh-oh, as as he re- watched. Okay, <laughs> what did I say? Dark Phoenix is set in 1992, and Dazzler sings 2019 pop. Cool, cool. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so there's a scene with Dazzler at the beginning, and I was like, "Oh, cool, Dazzler!" And then and then I started to go, "Wait." But why is she dressed like Disco Dazzler when this is 92? And I'm and then part of me went, all right, well, that's her iconic look. So if anybody in the film is going to maintain their iconic look, I, I'll, I'm comfortable with Dazzler maintaining her iconic look. But then the song she's singing doesn't sound anything like early 90s pop. No. At all. Uh, I also say a couple responses to people. Somebody saying, "Oh, somebody on the plane next to me is watching it." And you're like, "They let him put a bring a bomb on a commercial <laughs> flight." <laughs> I said, "Dark Phoenix is outside my window. Close and lock it." Anyway, next response: Storm's blonde hair with black roots and Dark Phoenix is egregious. <laughs> yes, uh, there are there are. 
it's barely perceptible, but uh, thank God for 4K and Blu-ray, um, you can see the fact that her hair is actually like an ashy blonde. It's not white. In some scenes, if it's lit correctly, it looks white, but it's a, it's kind of a very, very light gold with black roots, which is just, you know, they could never, over the course of these movies, get Storm's hair right. Yeah. Not one single time. They can create entire worlds out of CG, but and they, they can't, can't make a black hair. woman look like she has white hair yeah. for one fucking movie. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I agree. I remember going... Huh? Yeah. You do that's you do know she Storm doesn't like bleach her hair, right? That's kind of like she's a mutant. You know, you got Nightcrawler mm. who's blue. It's not like he goes in in the morning and repaints himself, right? <laughs> uh, speaking of Nightcrawler, your next one was Cody Smith McPhee looks visibly uncomfortable in his Nightcrawler makeup in every scene. He has a lot of trouble closing his mouth over his Nightcrawler teeth. Shades of Cage and Kiss of the Vampire. Yes. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, he has big fake teeth, and he can't close his mouth, and it's troubling. And I think he's probably ADR'd a lot, which means that he looks uncomfortable on set because he probably sounded like Beth. Right. Um, yeah, he's. Uh, I felt sorry for him. Uh, and your last one, I thought this big finale fight was the end, but there's still 40 minutes left of oh, Jinkeray X-Men's. <laughs> Gene, the only line they wrote for Ty Sheridan, but they wrote it 427 times. And this is my favorite. Uh, Jessica Gass Chastain, give me that Phoenix horse. Sophie Turner, okay? Jessica Chastain, and then you just <laughs> have a... Have a uh, a copy of, uh, what is this, the, uh, um, photo Edgar of the Edgar Winter group. <laughs> photo of Edgar Winter. <laughs> I just started dying. <laughs> it's like, you're right, that's who I, I, the whole time I watched this, like, who does Jessica Chastain look like in this? She looks like someone, and you're right, it's Edgar Winter. Um, you're killing me with this. This is, uh, this was not a movie I enjoyed, and the, the big battle in the, was it like, it's not the X-Men mansion. It's like a different mansion. There's like a big battle in a mansion-y kind of thing, and I thought yeah. that was the big finale. And, and then there's so then there's much like, more. like so much more movie. Well, I mean, but it felt like the finale, and it was at the hour and a half mark, so I was like, okay, cool, it's winding down. And then it was like, are you kidding me? Like, there's that much more of this movie? Um, that was a real That was a real letdown there. Yeah, it, the whole movie is kind of a real letdown. I mean, I'm all, I, I, it's the first time in a while I remember feeling genuinely embarrassed for some of the really, really great actors who are in this movie that they have to be in it. I mean, there's scenes with Michael Fassbender where I was just cringing the whole time. That you're like, this is what you have Michael, Michael Fassbender. You have him doing this. Jessica Chastain, one of the greatest actresses of her age group working. You have her doing this. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, I mean, almost, there's so many great actors in this crew. Sure, certainly can't tell to watch the movie. No, um, and I couldn't, I also had a had a weird fan nitpick that Apocalypse ended with them all getting their screen accurate X-Men costumes and then them not wearing those in the movie. Yeah. And I was like, why did Apocalypse end with the promise of, because the whole thing of these freaking Brian Singer, uh, Laura Shul, Shulin Donner, X-Men movies has been they don't wear their costumes from the comics. Right. And so at the end of Apocalypse it was like they were throwing us a bone and being like, alright finally, you get your yellow you're gonna and blue. Get, you're going to get Nightcrawler in the red and black with the white gloves right. and everything and you're going to have like Mystique's got white on and, and it was like alright, cool. And then this movie starts and they all have these hideous 
it's there's they they're obviously inspired by the Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely X Men uniforms, mm-hmm. but those don't translate on film at all. They're actually I find them ugly, like the ugliest X Men uniforms. Just, I, I I don't mind them in the comics, but I think they look bad on people. They're formless. Yeah, they're big chunky square jackets. Um, they kind of make everybody look like a big cube. Right. Um, and I was like, what happened to the cool costumes they showed at the end of Apocalypse? That's so nitpicky, but it's no, one know, of the things I'm looking forward to about Marvel taking over yes, the series. that's what I was going to say. X-Men, to me, has always been so weird and so different. And there's a they've got to balance, like, you have all the soap opera stuff that has to be has to be part of X-Men that, honestly, even today, I think the comics miss the soap opera aspect. Mm-hmm. But there has to be the soap opera stuff. And it also has to feel a little strange, like at all times, just a little like. A Which little I thought the Grant beyond. Morrison run got better yeah. than almost anybody. Yeah, um, and and I'm really looking forward to Marvel taking it over because I don't feel like, as good as some of the X Men movies have been, they've only been good in the context of the X Men movies themselves. Yeah. We still haven't gotten quote-unquote, a good X-Men movie. Does that make sense? There's no consistency either, which is the one thing we know we'll get from Marvel once it's in there. Like, if they decide for something to happen in one of their X-Men movies, they're not going to completely rewrite it in the next movie without any explanation of why. These movies should have ended with Days of Future Past. That button at the end of Days of Future Past where the timeline is restored, and he sees all the characters that had already died earlier, it was a perfect goodbye, and that should have been the end of the Fox that should have been the end of that universe, but that wasn't the case. Here it is, you know, three, four movies later. You know, I'm glad we got Logan. I'm glad we got Deadpool, but it's it's so beyond time. I know there are people resistant to MCU taking over any of the Fox properties. I mean, but I feel like that's more to do with the fear of them just being and having too much power, too many of the franchises, too much of the stuff, and I totally get that. But X-Men is a Marvel property. It belongs with the other Marvel properties. It belongs interacting with the other Marvel properties. It's a obviously very complicated storyline to keep up among multiple movies. But if there's anybody who can do it, it's Kevin Feige. Yeah. You know? Uh, but that is it. For, oh, I'm sorry. Let me just say real quick. There's eight and a half minutes of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. There is an hour and 20 minute making of. <laughs> That's like... I I wonder if anyone has ever watched it other than the guy who edited it. Uh, There's How to Fly Your Jet to Space with the Beast with Nicholas Holt doing a goofy thing fucking around on the, the, uh, what is it called? The Blackbird, uh, which was an actual plane, by the way. He did the Beast makeup on this one. It's like a weird. Looks like he has a beard, and he's all yeah. old. It has like looks like blue old age makeup with a with an Amish well, beard. It's a weird thing. It's a really here. strange. Design. They keep trying to establish this thing of like him and. Uh, What's her name? Jennifer uh, Mystique. Yeah. They're like, we're so old. Oh, we're so old. And you're like, are you though? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Uh, there's audio commentary by Simon Kinberg and somebody named Hutch Parker. Don't know who that is. But anyway, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. Sorry, I know that one was a little long, but I handed John, like I said, a massive stack of movies uh, to watch over the, the Fantastic Fest period. And, and there they all were. Aaron will be up with us again shortly with another stack of movies, and then John handing him another massive stack to go home with here. Sorry, it's all just, it was one of those things I got a bunch of stuff that were big releases that all came at once that I just saw, so I was like, oh, I don't even need to watch these. I'll just look at the extra features and then put them on the stack. How convenient for me, but not for John. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> It was a 
couple in here I've already seen, so we're yeah, that that's at go. least taken care of. 